Well, good morning. Good to see you all again. Man, I tell you what, a lot of familiar faces and some new ones. How exciting, man. You're in your new place. This is good. Padded chairs. I can go an hour and a half, two hours like that, right? <laughs> you laugh, but you know. It's good to be back with you. It's good to see how the Lord continues to work in your midst. Congratulations, brother. Man, a few more. You can have your own zip code. That'll be cool. We're really just, we're thrilled to see each one of you again. Open your Bibles, if you will, to uh, the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 9 through 11 today. Uh, a fascinating passage, I think, in the book of Philippians. It's, it's really about the kind of things you're talking about in your equipping hour. It's really about uh, this idea as believers, as Christians, what are, what are we to be like? And, and this is a, the passage we're going to look at. It's part of the prayer of Paul where he's praying for other believers. And I just got to set this up by saying, you know what? Take this prayer and pray it for one another in this flock and see what the Lord does. Because this is just, it's really everything kind of boiled down on what the Christian life is to look like and, and how, how our hearts are to be, how our heads are to be, what we're to be about as we seek to serve the Lord. And it'll overflow in evangelism uh, and, and every aspect of life. And you see what God will do in this, this church. What we see in this passage is, is four marks, really, of a growing Christian. Now, I want us to look at this, not so we can just study it for the fun of studying it, but I want to look at it because for a purpose, right? So that we can examine ourselves, right, and, and see our own lives through the mirror of the Word of God and, and see and evaluate if we're growing into the most effective, mature, and usable believers, the kind of believers that God uh, rejoices to use for his own praise and glory. Now, if you've got your Bibles open, let me just read the passage real quick, and then we'll delve into it. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And this I pray, Paul writes, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now in your bulletin somewhere, you've got an outline, and it tells us what those four marks of a growing Christian are to look like, okay? Number one is an abounding heart. Number two is a maturing head. Number three is an increasing honor. And the fourth one is a producing harvest. And remember that this is Paul, the apostle, praying uh, and, and under the inspiration of the Spirit of God who has preserved this, this word for us. So you've got to know that this prayer right here is a real great way to pray for one another. If you want to pray this for me, man, I just love you all the more for it. If you want to pray that for one another, it's just an amazing thing what God will do as, it's not like, a, I'm not saying magic prayer, Jabez kind of pray it, but I'm talking about that you care about one another, that you want to see each one of us growing into who God desires us to be which God has outlined for us in his word here in the passage I just read to you. Now, the first characteristic that you see there is an abounding heart. You see that at the beginning of verse 9. He says in this, I pray that your love may abound still more and more. Now, love is a perverted concept in our society anymore. Would you agree with that? I mean, people don't even know how to define love anymore. But the beauty of Scripture is that Scripture defines love for us. And the type of love that we see in Scripture is so very different than what you might see in a movie or the TV or, hey, Valentine's this week, right? You all going to love your wives and do all the fun stuff? Do that, be sentimental, all that stuff. But this love is even more than that and have this kind of love 
uh, involving with it. This is a love. The word here is agape. You've heard that. It's the, the idea of a self-sacrificing love. A love that is a, a love of action and a love that is a commitment of the will. Very different than the way the world defines love. Now, there are two critical components that you see on your outline of this abounding heart, this agape love, okay? The first one I've mentioned, it is a commitment of the will. Uh, you see, the world defines love in, in terms of attraction and reciprocation. Agape love is very different from that. I want you to understand this, okay? Even, I've done a lot of premarital counseling in my day, and even with the best and most solid Christians that you come in and they're doing their counseling, when you ask them, why do you love them? So often the response comes back like this. Well, they make me feel, or I like how I am around. And it almost turns it back to who I am, right? Whereas this kind of love, it does not require the, the, the one being loved to be lovable. Okay, you tracking with me so far? Give me one of those if you're tracking with me, all right? Uh, Israel, right? God loved Israel, right? He chose Israel. You understand? Did, did he choose Israel because they were like super cool, really awesome and lovable? No. In fact, they were small and they were puny and obscure, right? They brought nothing to the table. You understand? But because he is a great and sovereign God, what did he do? He chose them. He, he poured his love upon them. Boy, does that remind you of anything else? How about you as a Christian? When, when you got saved by the grace of God, did you get saved by your own merits? Was it, was it your faith? Was it, was it your repentance? It, you can't do any of that apart from him. And the fact is, if he doesn't love us first, we cannot even love him, right? The Bible teaches. So the picture of love here is a picture of a God kind of love, where you love regardless of if there is reciprocation or attraction on your part, okay? It's a commitment of the will. It, it does not require that the lover feel positively about what is loved. I've sat in, in many counseling situations with couples that are struggling, and, and I remember one gal came into my, my home one time and uh, was leaving her husband. We talked about she, was a, she professed Christ. She knew the word of God. We went to the scriptures and said, okay, what does God have to say about your situation? How does this apply in this very difficult thing you're going through? And her response after all that, yes, I agree, that's what it says. Yes, I agree, this is what the Bible teaches. Yes, I agree, I should do this and I should do that according to scripture. At the end of it, she says, but I'm going to divorce him anyway. And I can't help it because I fell in love with somebody else. And I know, above all, that God wants me to be, and this is a bad one here, God wants me to be happy, first and foremost. That's everywhere today, folks, right? God is more concerned with your holiness than your happiness, okay? Happiness is circumstantial. He wants you to be who you should be in Christ, and in that you will find the greatest uh, uh, contentment and satisfaction that is possible, that supersedes anything that the world might refer to as a circumstantial happiness. Agape love can help it. Agape love is a love of choice and the will. Number two, it has a concern for others. Agape love uh, makes the choice to love another person. Again, attraction is not necessary for agape love to operate. Uh, God didn't love us because we were attractive, but it meets the need uh, of that person who is rather unlikable as well as a sweet, tendered-eyed child. 
I mean, think about this for a second. You're on the way you love other people. Do you only love those who love you? Think about that. I mean, do you only love, I mean, can you love a grumpy person? Can you love somebody who's critical of you? Agape love can. You see, agape love goes, supersedes the reciprocal kind of love and says, you know what? I will look past the faults and the sins and all that stuff and I will continue to love. Now, this is not an issue where truth is getting thrown out the window. We'll get to that in a little bit. But right off the bat, you care about the other person and your concern is not how do I feel, but how does God feel about this person and how should I reflect that uh, to them in this given circumstance? It has a concern for others. You, love, you can love those who aren't lovable. You can love that grumpy person, the mean-spirited person, just as God loved us when we were unlovable. Greater love hath no man than this. This is agape love, right? That he lays down his life for his friends. There's a sacrifice to agape love. And this is the heart of what you get into later in Philippians, in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, where, where we're told, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, right? But also for the interest of others. And that, that, that agape love kind of sacrifice involves things like Ephesians 4.32, where we're to be kind to one another, where we're to be tenderhearted, where we're forget, to forgive each other, just as God in Christ forgave us when he showed us the love. So in Ephesians 5, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in agape love right? Just as Christ also agape loved you and gave himself up for you, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So the application here really as you think about what does this love look like is we're to be abounding in love, which is what the prayer is here, right? When it doesn't feel like Valentine's Day, when it's not just flowers and chocolates and a nice restaurant and candles and all that kind of stuff when you don't feel warm and fuzzy about your situation or the person you're dealing with, can't, will you choose to reflect Christ in that situation? Now this concern for one another shows care to others, whether they show care to you or not, right? Luke 6.27 says, I say to you who hear, Jesus is speaking, he says, love, check this out, not just your wife, not just your kids, your family, the brethren. What does he say? Love your Somebody filled in for me. Starts with an E, ends with an enemies. Okay, right? Right? Love your what? Enemies, right? Think about that for a little while. How tricky is this one, right? But is this the word of God? Just like, by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourself is a gift of God? You bet it is. It's just as true. It's just as realistic. And it's just as much a part of the Christian walk, right? The way we ought to be. We have the spirit of God indwelling us, the word of God guiding us. And we're going to pick and choose what we want to do. It says love. Your enemies, agape, your enemies. Unfortunately, and this is a sad thing, is we don't see this too much in churches today. Somebody says something that someone doesn't like and there's retaliation or, or there's hard feelings when instead there should be an agape, an agape spirit that says, let's work through this, let's open the book and see how we're supposed to deal with what we face today. Agape love is a love that gives with no strings attached, not an emotion, but a commitment of the will to seek the very best for the object of the love. And this kind of love, folks, is the greatest thing. It really is. 
Remember 1 Corinthians, right? Into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Remember this very familiar passage, right? If you've been to a wedding, you've heard this one. It's the go-to passage, right? At the end of it, it says in 1313, it says, but now abide faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? Go ahead. Love, right? But the greatest of these is love. Why? What, you telling me that love's more important than faith? Didn't quite say that, but it's greater. He did say that. You telling me that love is more important than hope? Well, yes. Why? Faith becomes what? Sight. Hope becomes a reality, but love continues on all the way into heaven, so it lasts. It's greater. Okay? Now, this is biblical love, and right now, what you've got to really guard yourself against is thinking of it in terms of how the world has defined love, because so far, this is where churches break down. What happens is we say, well, we'll just love everybody, which means we don't deal with sin. We don't help people when they're hurting. We don't uh, confront. We don't reprove, rebuke, or any of that kind of stuff that Scripture tells us, and we've moved outside of what Scripture is. True love comes alongside even in those situations. Amen? Right? If we agape love one another according to the word of God, we fulfill the law, the scriptures even say, right? Jesus says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And you, the second commandment is you shall love the neighbor as yourself, your neighbor as yourself. And then he says these things have fulfilled the law of the prophets when you're like that, biblically loving. Scripture even goes further and t- teaches us that agape love is a significant indicator of our relationship with Christ. As you're looking for assurance of salvation, this is one place you can find it. 1 John 3, 14 and 15 says, we know that we have passed out of death and into life. Why? Because we walked an aisle? Because we signed a card? Because we were accepted as members of a church? Because we were baptized? All those, th- you know, the, being a part of a body is important, right? Being baptized is a fulfillment of a command that Jesus gave, so it's important, right? But let me tell you why and how you can know that you've passed out of death and into life because, according to 1 John 3, 14, we love the brethren. Agape love. He who does not love agape abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I tell you what, as growing Christians, We should be marked by this kind of love. An agape love. Look back at verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. See, he's just praying, you know, I know you haven't arrived is almost what he's saying, right? I haven't arrived, you haven't arrived, right? We're not perfected in this agape love stuff, true? But what he's praying is that love would be present tense, abounding. And he didn't leave it there. He didn't say, I just pray that your love would abound. He doesn't even leave it there because he knows we need to hear this, right? Uh, He doesn't even say, I pray that your love will abound still. That would say like, you know, it did and let's keep it going. He didn't just stop there. He didn't say, I I pray that the love would abound still more, right? Even more, that'd be good. That makes the point, doesn't it? But he says, I pray their love would abound still more and more. It's like he's just piling up the superlatives and saying, this is to be a mark of the brethren, right? This is to be a mark of who we are in Christ Jesus. Because he loved us, we then by necessity and by, by nature now, as we have been regenerated, love one another. This is not an optional thing, but it's something that should be a part of us as those who have been begotten of God and ever growing. 
The idea is a continuing process of growth. I remember when I was in high school, we went to Niagara Falls, right? Niagara Falls is amazing. I mean, it's a tourist trap, but it's amazing. And when you stand next to that rail, and you got the, 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 the water coming over, and you can see the rock through it, right? Not this time of year, maybe. But you can see the rock through it, and it's like three feet of water, just clear water, just whoosh, rushing over that, right? And the picture's kind of like that. That's God's love, right? He's abounding still more and more of his love toward us, right? Now picture us. We're like a little cup, right? Let's make it out of steel or something so it doesn't get crushed by the flow of the water because that would kill my illustration. But you take the cup, and if you were to, with the strength of your arm, which, you know, if you had my strength, you could do this. You put that, uh, you put that cup under the waterfall, right? How long would it take that to fill? I'm not asking for a calculator. We, uh, you know, it would be like instantaneous, right? And what would begin to happen? It would just fill up and flatten off and that's it? It would continue, right? And it would, tell me what it does, overflow. Now dig this, all right? Because this is what God's like, all right? He is abounding still more and more with his love toward us. And as we who are the recipient of his glorious love, and that's coming into our little cracked mugs, right? It is coming into us, filling us up, and overflowing onto others. Why in the world wouldn't we still be abounding more and more in love? Are we going to minimize God and say we can't? Would he have you pray for something that's impossible? That would be an unjust God, wouldn't it? It's love pouring into us and overflowing out to others. I think it's so sad when people are around people from church, whether it be at work or even in the church sometimes, or they sit near them in a restaurant and you find criticism abounding still more and more, or conflict abounding still more and more, or cliques abounding still more and more. As Christians, we should be characterized by an abounding heart, a heart that is overflowing still more and more, with agape love. Secondly, a growing Christian will be marked by a maturing head. Okay? You don't stop at the beginning of verse 9. Paul didn't. We don't. Okay? So you need a love that is based upon the truth here. And that's what this is all about. He says in verse 9, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. And what this passage really tells us is how to grow in love, okay? Grow in love how? In real knowledge and all discernment for a purpose. Real knowledge, and these are the two critical components of a maturing head here, and these are really important, okay? Number one, you need to know the truth of God's word. Okay, you need to be in the book, is what that says. He says in real knowledge, the Greek word there is epigenosis. It means practical wisdom or applied knowledge. It's not just head knowledge, but it's knowledge that's going down and getting applied, so you're getting, a, 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 you're understanding it, but it's becoming part of you. And I tell you what, if you're going to grow spiritually or you're going to grow in love, if we're going to do that, we need to be in the book. Not just on Sunday mornings, not just in equipping hour, not just at your care group, but daily. Hungering for it, right? Don't tell me you're too old. Don't tell me you're too young. Don't tell me you're too busy, Right? I understand that people have different capacities for learning. I, I'm sorely aware of that. I had professors. I had a professor, a Hebrew professor. This guy, I don't know what kind of capacity for learning this guy must have had, but it was sick. 
I'm just telling you. I would be talking to him. I'd say, hey, on this little deal, some obscure thing, you know, what about, what do you got any ideas on blah, 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 whatever the question was. I remember one time I was asking him some obscure question. I think probably trying to show how smart I am, right? And uh, he says, well, you know, the, real, the best answer for that, if you go to so-and-so's book, volume two, on page 173 at the footnote A, that's, that's going to answer your question. I couldn't remember the name of the book. How does this guy know this, right? But that's, that's a different capacity for learning, isn't it? Now we, but we all have a capacity for learning. And for some, it takes more. And for some, they have the photographic memory, right? If you don't have a photographic memory, count yourself as blessed. <laughs> no, seriously, right? It's easier to forgive. <laughs> uh, and, and you know what? It's kind of like uh, I got through high school, just breezed right through high school. But when I went to A&M, went to college, I had to study. I had to learn to study. And those guys who had to study in high school did better in college in the beginning than I did because they had, you know, processes of studying already built into them because they had to learn it already. I had to figure that out on the fly. You see? So be blessed in that you can come to the Word of God. You may not get it the first time. You may not even get it the second time or the third time, but you keep pouring over it, right? Keep just digging deeper and deeper and let the Word of God just wash over your life and into your head. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. You got to know the Word of God. This is essential if you're going to have a maturing head, if you're going to have real knowledge. We're to be, 1 Peter 2 2 says, like newborn babes who long for the pure milk of the Word. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, don't you, John? Right? You got a babe right now, right? How many hours did you say you got last night? Five and a half hours? Did you get woke up at all by a baby, maybe hungry? Don't ruin my sermon. Just say yes. Lie now. <laughs> really, you've got the one baby on earth that doesn't get up every three hours? You guys are praying for him way too much. <laughs> Normally what happens, you might want to take your baby to the doctor. Normally what happens is the baby is hungry, right? And when the baby's hungry, what does the baby do? <laughs> right? I want now, right? It's ready. It lets you know because it's urgent to the child. Not a lot of other things are urgent, but that's urgent. As we are believers. Do we have an urgency about our desire for the pure milk of the Word of God? Or is it like an accessory? If I get some extra time today, I hope to be able to do my Bible study. If I get some extra time, I'd like to have a little time, and a little quiet time. We put it last instead of first, right? Just as a baby needs nutrition, we need spiritual nutrition. We are to know the truth of God's Word, but that's not all. Number two, we are to apply the truth of God's word to our life. We see that applied by the power of the Spirit. Uh, we must have not just real knowledge, but all discernment. Discernment, discernment here describes correct insight that, that allows you to assess your circumstances, assess the people that you interact with, and respond properly applying that real knowledge. This has to be part of the equation, too. The illustration of this to me is Lot. If you think about Lot, uh, you know, Lot was a guy who was exposed to a lot of biblical truth, wasn't he? I mean, think of the first-hand, second-hand, third-hand accounts of what happened in, in Old Testament history that he, had, he got to hear from the, some of the people who were right there. Okay? He, he's post-flood, right? So he understands that, that God looked down the earth and saw wickedness, and he didn't like wickedness, and he had to judge the earth. Okay? He understood that. How did he understand it? Because the whole earth, not just a part, not just, you know, this little section or anything, it was a global flood, right? Uh, this whole thing was wiped out, save eight people. Why? Because of wickedness. He understood wickedness was bad. 
But when Lot and Abraham stand up on that hill and Abraham says, choose whatever you want, uh, which was him doing a Philippians 2, 3, and 4 kind of thing, right? Lot chooses the, the fertile land. We don't fault him for that necessarily, right? Because we're assuming Abraham really meant it, right? So he chooses that. That's not a bad thing. But then we find him pitching his tent towards Sodom. And then we find him in Sodom. And the next thing you know, we find him in a leadership position at the gate of Sodom. He has allowed himself to forget the truth, right? He's got the knowledge. God hates wickedness and wickedness deserves judgment. But he, he's pushed that aside for the pleasures of whatever that offered to him, whether it be prestige of being a leader or just the company or the convenience of having a Walmart close by, Walmart Sodom, right? Equal things, actually. <laughs> and what, what was the net effect of that on, on Lot and his family's life? Horrendous. It was devastating. Painful. Look what it did to his daughters. Look what it did to his wife, who became basically just a spice. Right? He had knowledge, but he didn't apply it in the situation that he ran into. This is so important, folks, because knowledge has to be present with application. And I believe that this love aspect really comes into play here. Taking knowledge and having it and applying it is really an act of love. You see, for, for true biblical love to abound, there must be a foundation of real knowledge and discernment. Biblical love, folks, is not blind. Biblical love seeks to know right from wrong, false from true. And in a postmodern society where nothing is true and everything's right in everybody's own eyes, the Bible shows us very clearly that that's a wrong path. The problem a lot of people have is they look at knowledge versus love. But here we have them in the same verse. It's either or. You can't be loving and be orthodox. You can't be orthodox and be loving, you see. And, and we see plenty of examples where one has built up one to the cost of another. But they have to be there. And they're, they're partners. They're twins. They're Siamese twins holding on to one another. Okay. Love without knowledge is a messed up deal. It really is. In the church, it, it becomes this misguided ecumenism, okay? It's just like, well, let's just put aside any doctrinal differences. We don't really care about that. And it waters down the, the church to where it's nothingness and doesn't, God wouldn't recognize it. In the individual, it becomes a sentimentality that is unwilling to help somebody who really needs help. And it ends up, all these things end up misguided and less than productive. William Hendrickson wrote this, and I quote, a person who possesses love but lacks discernment may reveal a great deal of eagerness and enthusiasm. He may donate to all kinds of causes. His motives may be worthy and his intentions honorable, yet he may be doing more harm than good. So you have somebody who's hurting, who's, who's, who's down on their luck, and it's like give it, if you gave cash to a drug addict, right? Not a good idea. Invest in them. You know, go take them to a meal or do something like that, right? On the other hand, see that, so love without knowledge is messed up. On the other hand, knowledge without love is a problem too. And we've seen churches like this. In the church, it becomes, a, you know, kind of cold orthodoxy. You go in and man, everything's right on. The songs, lyrics are right. The preaching is good and all that kind of stuff. But there's no warmth in the body, right? That's cold orthodoxy. In the individual, it becomes brutality where you're like, hey, you know, it's an arrogance that looks down and says, hey, I've got it right. Boom, here's your Bible verse. Boom, get that straightened out. And it's not a matter of, hey, there but by the grace of God go I. And I care. And how can I help you, brother, down this path 
because a cord of two strands, three strands is not easily broken, right? The Bible teaches to have both, right? And for people who would say that knowledge is more important than love, just go to 1 Corinthians 13, right? If I say I know all mysteries and have all knowledge but do not have love, I am what? Nothing. Love and knowledge must be inseparable to be effective. Now look back at verse 10. There's a purpose for all this, for this knowledge and discernment. Look at it. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. Now this is good, folks, okay? What are the things that are excellent? This is, this is brilliant, by the way. Excellent to you and I is what, what form of speech? What word is it? You know, like noun, verb, adverb. Anyone? Oh, the school system is really letting us down. What? Bingo. Give the man a cookie. Uh, that's right, yeah. It's a descriptive. But you know what it is in the Greek? It's a, it's a verb, all right? It's, it has a verbal form there. So it, it means to the things that make a difference. So the idea is, Dakimadzo is to prove, and then this diaphero um, uh, is the things that make a difference. So it's this idea of, uh, of an active proving and recognizing the things that make a difference in, in, in life. Now, this is good, because approving the things that are excellent, you go, yeah, I approve the Word of God, it's excellent, right? I approve that church, it's excellent. But this is, I'm looking at my life in this situation with real knowledge and discernment, abounding in love still more and more, and I'm looking for those things that will really make a difference in this generation. Are you tracking with me so far? Again, we're not here, right, just to kind of fill up a pew or a chair. We're not here just to, 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 to do time and excel in our businesses and only raise good families and things like that. We're here to make an impact. We're here to make a difference. So this real knowledge and all discernment with love still abounding more and more is the thing that points us to, helps us to understand more than just choosing from right and wrong, but being able to discern between better and best. What are the things that make a difference? For the advancement of the gospel in any given circumstance. And folks, what this really boils down to is an issue of priorities. Later in Philippians, we're told what things that are excellent are, you know. True, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, worthy of praise. And those are things we're to let our mind dwell on. But the reality is, and we can all sit here, myself included, we can look and say, you know, so often my mind runs to things which aren't really that way. Right? Not bad things even. But just not really making a difference thing. As you know, I love A&M football. I love it. Even Johnny Manziel. But you know what? Most of the time, if I'm just sitting there watching that on ESPN Ocho, you know, it's like that's, there's nothing else. I mean, that's not making a difference, right? I can use that love for that with other people who might be interested in college football and have it where I start to make a difference. I don't have to abandon all those things, but I need to look at my life in such a way that I say, am I arranging things in such a way that that things are going to be affected for the kingdom of God? We're a distracted people, folks. And as we come to the truth of God's word and we're exposed to what God has defined as your biblical priorities in his word, which contains all the truths, attitudes, thoughts, words, deeds, and all that, which are expressions of God's will for a believer, 
uh, we, we aren't left to just wander around and go, and I wonder what God wants me to do today because we understand who God is. We understand his character. And within those guide uh, rails of the road, we can run and, and have an impact for the kingdom of God. Amen? We, we run here and there, though. Instead, we're busy with life. We're involved in everything. Our schedules are loaded. And many of the things that we do are either non-moral or good even that maybe aren't the things we need to be doing. At the end of the day, if we're honest, if we lay our head on the pillow and we, we take an inventory of what happened in the day, sometimes we would see that very little, if any of it, accomplished anything for the kingdom of God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that really just acceptable? As believers who love our Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? We find time, we have our kids in, in football, bocce ball, lacrosse, you know, basketball, baseball, karate, championship yodeling. I mean, we're running here and there for everything, right? But we can't find time to share the gospel with a neighbor who knows, needs to hear it. We, we can't find time to, to encourage a brother and sister in the faith to, to spend still moments before God because we're so scheduled up with stuff that really doesn't make a difference. I'm not saying it's wrong to have your kid be a championship yodeler, okay? I'm just saying that we need to order our life in such a way that, hey, if my kid's going to be, or if I'm going to be a championship yodeler, I'm going to do it for the glory of God, and I'm going to use those relationships because everybody's coming to me because I'm such a great yodeler that I'm going to use this opportunity to talk to people about Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Nobody's tracking with me on the yodeling thing, are you? (laughs) Must not be big in Fullerton. I think the devil looks at our busy schedules when we're not using them for the kingdom of God and he just laughs because we're not doing the things that make a difference. We need to be discerning in our activities. We need to seek God's face in everything we do and not get too busy to pray or too busy to gather with other believers in the church or too busy to read the word or too busy to share our faith. I love the advice that Susanna Wesley gave to her son John when he went away to Oxford. She said, son, and I quote, Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off your delight from spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of your body over your mind, that thing, John, is sin. That's good advice. The reason that some of us aren't growing as we should be is because we have allowed our desires toward God to be dulled by the events of daily life. God has called us to have a maturing head so that we can discern what things we should be doing that will meet our objective. And our objective is reaching the lost, right? Evangelizing the lost, equipping the saints, and exalting God. And when we focus on those things, and it moves back through the verses, right? We can't help but have an abounding heart because our priorities will be God's priorities and we will be vessels that God uses to reach a lost and hurting world. Now look back at verse 10 and let me show you the third mark of a growing Christian. This was good too. It's an increasing honor, okay? That's your blank, honor. Verse 10 says, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. You see, our honor, our integrity should be increasing with each day. The first word he uses there to describe it is sincere. And that's really the idea of moral and spiritual purity. Uh, It it carries the idea literally of being judged by sunlight. Now get this, this is beautiful, okay? 
Back in Paul's day, when this thing was written, there were unscrupulous merchants, right, who would make pottery. And when they made this pottery, sometimes when you have the thing in the kiln, it wasn't quite right. There were some imperfections in it. What would happen? When it got heated up, it would crack. A cracked pot is really not of any value. That's why that illustration is used in Scripture, right? It's not of any value unless something else has happened to it, okay? What they would do to hide that fact so they could still sell it is they would take that crack and they would fill it with wax. Then they'd paint over the whole thing, set it on the shelf with all the rest of them as people came by to look at their wares, and they would go, yeah, this is a beautiful pot. Look at the nice artwork. It looks great and everything. Buy it and take it home. They buy that thing, they take it home, and they put it on the fire. Guess what happens when wax gets hot? Any ideas? Anybody? Any scientist? Botanist? What is it? No. What happens? Wax melts. You're good. And then it's, you see it's worthless, right? What's beautiful about this is our word sincere actually even comes from the Latin root there. Sine sere means without wax. All right? So what I'm saying is I want you to be have integrity. You're without wax. It's not just painting over the crack, but the reality is you're true and a usable vessel. This is great stuff here, guys. I hope you really, really can get this and enjoy it because it's Paul saying that you'll be that way. You'll be sincere. You'll be without wax if you're abounding in love and exercising real knowledge and discernment. And you'll be that whole, complete, honest, genuine, real thing, sincere, without hypocrisy type of believer. Hypocrisy, as you know, is a poison to the church. It's a horrible distractor to the work of God, and we need to be sincere. Folks, we don't want to be a Judas, right? Professing love Christ and then going out and selling him for 30 pieces of silver. And we don't want to be a Demas, right? Who's hanging around with the crowd, but when the, the lures of Rome comes, you run away and, and pass it off, you know, and just say, no, nah, it's not important to me anymore. You don't want to be an Ananias or Sapphira, right? Who go up in front of everybody and profess, hey, look at this, man. I love God. I'm giving everything to him. When in your heart, you were holding something back. We want to be sincere. James Stalker did a sermon, a classic sermon on four men. He says there are four men that each one of us is. There's the man that the world sees. There's the man that we, our friends see. There, there's the man that we ourselves see, and sees and the man that God sees. And he says the one that God sees, that's the real one. And what sincerity is, is they're all the same. They become the same. It's not a fake. It's not a show. It's not a facade. We should be found without wax. We should be found sincere. Look back at verse 10. Paul also says, he gives another part of increasing honor there. Not only sincerity, he says we should also be found blameless. And that, that means not causing to stumble, that word there. And it really is referring to your effect on other people. Your life won't produce negative effects in others. You won't fragment other relationships. You won't break up what God is doing in others. You're consistent. And I think it's a powerful question to ask ourselves from time to time is about our own lives and just say, is my life encourage or discourage God's work in other people. When we were out here in seminary 14 years or whatever ago it was, I worked for a company called Warehouser, and, and what I did for them was I designed floors for these big mansions like Cher and Sean Connery and people like that. And a lot of these big mansions had these massive, and still do, have these big patios outside, Right? And, you know, for entertaining and stuff like that. But one of the things that you always did when you were designing that was you made sure that that floor, that, that surface, that structure underneath, it always tilted away from the house just a little bit. Not a lot, just a little bit. Why? 
because water seeks its lowest level. If it was tilted this way, water would come back to the doors in the patio, you know, all that kind of stuff and damaged floors and everything else in the house. But water seeks its lowest level, and it's like that within the church if you're not careful too. And this is why it's so important that we seek to have integrity in our own lives and be sincere and blameless. The, re- the reality is, uh, I love new believers, right? There's nothing more fun than a new believer. They are so fired up. They have just come to know the Lord. They have just experienced his grace in their lives. Everything is new to them. They're going, oh, scripture says that. That's awesome. And they're just excited as could be, right? Until what? Until they meet a old believer. I'm talking about time here. I'm not talking about maturity. And then they start looking and they do what everybody else does. And they say, well, you know, I'm fired up about, you know, sharing my faith with everybody, but all these people that have been here forever don't seem to do it much, and it's kind of a pain. It's kind of hard sometimes, and I've lost some friendships out of it. Water seeks its lowest level. We want to encourage, I'm talking to the mature, the old believers now, right? We want to encourage these younger believers to be fired up. Not for the sake of let's put on a show, right? But because we, we need to remember our first love, right? What God is like and how he poured out his grace. When you become mature, you start to think that you've arrived somehow and it's because of your own doing. And that's the only way I can really explain it, I think, is you no longer see the beauty of the grace of God because you start to think, you know, I'm doing this now. It's me and God. We're like practical Mormons at that point. No, 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 no. If you have been a Christian for 85 years, and, and you have been, by the grace of God, matured and growing and you, been used by him to reach people with the gospel and you know the word of God better than you ever have. Can I just submit to you this one very, very practical truth? You are still in need of grace just as much as that pagan who for the first time hears it. I am still in need of the grace today as much as I did the very first time I heard the gospel and responded by the grace of God. If we get our, our, our heads wrapped about that and understanding and applying that and our love abounding, you see what's going to happen here? We're going to want to because we love our God and we appreciate what he's done for us and because of what he's, how he's regenerated us, we're going to want to excel still more in this, right? Sincere, without wax, blameless, encouraging rather than discouraging good in others. You might be thinking right now, is this something we're only going to be when we're glorified, right? I mean, I don't feel very sincere sometimes, right? I don't feel very blameless sometimes. So is this really, is he just talking about this all going to be like when we're glorified, then it'll happen? Check out the phrase here at the end. We're to be this way now and look at it, until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, this is going on now. It's continuing to happen, ever growing. I used to play football, not like this guy played football, but I played in high school, which was like the minor leagues for Purdue, I guess. And uh, so anyway, I I remember playing football, and and sometimes you'd be up, winning the game in the fourth quarter, up by, say, seven points, right? The other team has the ball. Do you just like go, we're winning, fourth quarter's almost done, give it up? No way, right? Because now you can taste it even more, right? They've got the ball. Any little breakdown here or there, guess what? There could be a long pass. All of a sudden, it's a tie game. We're going into overtime, whatever else, right? 
Now, see, where we're at right now is we're, we are in the fourth quarter. It's, these are the last times, right? I'm not setting a date or anything. I'm just saying that's what Paul called them 2,000 years ago. I think we're still in them then, right? And, and here we are. We're in these times where we know that any point God can come, right? Jesus can return. How awesome would that be? And let's press on. Just like the end of that game, man. We're, let's leave it all in the field. We're going to keep on going, and we're not going to give up until the time of the shout, the trumpet, whatever, right? pressing on until the day of Christ Jesus. As growing Christians, see, we don't just rest on what God has done. We continue in what God has done and have an increasing honor. Number four, as growing Christians, we should be marked by a producing harvest. Look at verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I love this part. Having been filled, the Greek, that's, that's a, another verb, right? And it's perfect tense. And that's very, very special because what it denotes is something happened in the past and it has continuing results, okay? You were filled with the fruit of righteousness, singular fruit of righteousness, and its continuing effects are going on in your life as a believer. That's lovely. And because of that, folks, because Jesus Christ has given you that fruit of righteousness in your life already, because of that, you can have an abounding love. You can have a maturing head. You can have an increasing honor. Now, don't miss this. Notice the source of your fruit of righteousness. It comes through who? Through you? Through your, through your pastor? Through church membership? Through baptism? No, none of those things, right? Which comes through Jesus Christ. And this is really important, right? Because this is the source. There's a story told of Lawrence Arabia when he was in Paris after World War I. He brought some of his Arabian friends to Paris to see the big city. Took them around, look at the Eiffel Tower and that beautiful, you know, look at the Arc de Triomphe, you know, all that kind of stuff. Beautiful, he showed them French fries. He did the whole thing, right? They saw all that and they were like, uh, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, we don't have that in Arabia. But what they were really fired up and excited about was in their hotel room. They would go to their bathtubs. He found them doing this multiple times. He would go in and he would see them at the faucets in the bathtub and just turn them on, water. Turn them on. Because they're from the desert. You're getting this, okay? They're turning on. Look at this. Water's just coming out of the wall. Wouldn't it be great, you know, to have that at our house? Well, after, several, after quite a long visit there, it came time for him to leave. And when Lawrence went back to the hotel to get some of them, he found them trying to take the faucets off the walls of the hotel so they could take them back. And they said, you don't understand. Where we're from, you know, it's a desert, right? And if we had these things, oh, it would change our lives. And Lawrence had to take him aside and say, you know, it's not the faucet that's the water, right? You understand that there's a whole infrastructure built in here. There's a source. And he had to point him to the Alps and say, it's the snowpack on the Alps that brings the water through a system of pipes to the faucet. A faucet, guys, disconnected from the plumbing system and the source, the aqueduct or whatever it is, right, does not bring any water, right? So we have the fruit of righteousness. This is the key. It's got to be in the right Source. Everybody says, oh, you got to have faith. Faith in what? That's the source. You have faith in, in Jesus Christ and it will change your life. That's what it was about, right? He came to give his life so that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ could be saved, redeemed, transformed, and used by him for eternity. You can put your faith in that chair right there, as beautiful as it is, that chair will not get you to heaven or do anything in your life other than make you be able to bear the sermon just a hair longer. The source. 
Jesus Christ. Many people are living their lives as dry as the deserts of Arabia and their faucets without pipeline to the source. They think if they try hard enough, they can squeeze out enough drops of water to look like the real thing. They need the source. A source that is only through Jesus Christ. There's no other name given among men by which you must be saved. That's what you're talking about in the first hour, right? Talking about a very important thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you write those things up for this, your homework for this week, man, write it up good. Think about it. This is the most important message you ever give to anybody. What is the gospel? What do I need to communicate? What are the essentials? You can do, people think, you know, well, they do, I know this guy, he's a great guy. He's, he does a lot of good works, but he's not saved. And can I just admit to you that that fruit of righteousness, that's not the fruit of righteousness, you understand that, right? In fact, those are just filthy rags. The Bible tells us when you do good works. It's kind of like a kid that goes out, plays in the mud outside in the yard, and just, well, you remember mud when it used to rain? Anyway, uh, and gets just muddy, and he realizes when he looks at himself, oh, my mom is not going to be happy with me. So the little toddler goes in trying to please mom, and he goes in and says, she wants me to practice my piano lessons. So he sits down on the piano with his muddy hands and starts playing on the piano. Oh, mom will be pleased if I pick up my toys. She's always wanting me to pick up my toys. And he goes and he touches all his Legos and all the stuff and muds all over them and puts them in their buckets and puts them in the toy chest. Oh, she'll be so pleased with me. Oh, she wants, you know, I'm going to do the extra mile. I'm going to go in the kitchen and help unload this dishwasher, all these clean dishes. I'm going to put my muddy hands on them and put them away in the shelves where they go. When mom comes back, is mom going to be pleased? No. That's the point, see? There's a lot of things that might look like effort, but apart from Christ, folks, there is nothing. Apart from him, you can do nothing. I can do nothing. There is no meaning in life. There is nothing left. People are lost and dying all over the Southland and around the world right now. The gospel needs to go forth and have an impact by the grace of God on lives. Will we be the conduit from which that source can get to its final destination by the grace of God? Can you think of anything better to do than that? No, seriously. I mean, I can go and build a house. And make a beautiful home. An earthquake or a tornado or just time. It'll be worthless somewhere down the road. I can pour my life into being the best at this or that. But when I'm put in the grave 100 years later, very few people will remember probably. But if you can be used as an ambassador of the Almighty God to bring the message of salvation to people and help them to become disciples who are doing the same thing. That lasts into eternity. Nothing's better than that. You see? God didn't save us to change our address for eternity. That happens, and it's awesome. But you know what? If that was all it was about, the minute you got saved, he might as well just take you. Right? He saved us for a purpose so that we may live a life to his glory. And, and that's really where the verse ends up. I think you, you see it there, right? Look at the very end of verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, check it out, to the glory and praise of God. A man from another country came to a Christian lady's home asking for old newspapers and magazines. 
After giving him what she had on hand, they got to talking, and she learned he'd only been in the country for a few years. And she was surprised at how well he spoke English. It's amazing how, how well you can speak and communicate since you've only been here for such a short amount of time. And he attributed it to the study of these newspapers and magazines that he would get to learn the language. As he started to leave, he, he turned to this lady and he, he said, by the way, I found this book the other day. And he pulls out of his pocket a little pocket New Testament. And he said, lady, are there people who really live according to the things in this book? That's a penetrating question. In other words, does the world, when they see you and I, are they able to see a reflection of God's handiwork? Or have we so clouded it by becoming just like the world that we are rendered virtually without impact? You see, in Christ, we are positionally righteous, which is awesome. That's an awesome truth of Scripture. But sometimes we're real quick to say, well, I'm positionally righteous, but I'm not practically righteous yet. I get that at glorification, the full thing. You know what I'm saying? And I think sometimes we use that basically as an excuse, a write-off that says, you know, I don't really need to be pursuing righteousness in the Lord. We do sin. We're not perfect. But we are commanded to walk according to his word, and that should be the rule, not the exception. 1 John 1, 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We have the fruit of righteousness that should be flowing out of our lives into our lifestyle. The Westminster Catechism asks this question, what's the chief end or purpose of man? And you probably know the answer. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I think if you just kind of hold on to that, that'll take care of all the things we've just discussed, really. What's your chief end? Do you, is your purpose on this earth to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Or is it to have a higher bank account balance or a bigger home or a promotion at work or whatever else you want to fill in the blank with. You see, if, if your idea, if your desire is to glorify God, then all the rest of this stuff really starts to fall into place because he's given us his word. He's given us his spirit to apply the word. And the word applied abounds in love still more and more, right? When it's done properly, it brings glory to God. We need to be like the streams, right? When I lived in New Orleans, there was swamps. And it was this nasty green pond scum film on top of it. You would never in a million years want to get in that water. But you go to Colorado on a summer's day and you see a cool, clear stream of water coming down and flowing. It's like, man, I can't wait to stick my feet in that or hop in there. And as Christians, we should be that kind of ever-growing, ever-being-changed-by-the-mighty-hand-of-God so that we're cool-running Christians instead of pond-scum Christians, right? And living for his glory. Ah, oh, there's so much need, isn't there? Look around you. It's awesome to see how this church has already grown. Reach out with the gospel. Seek to be used by God for the things that make a difference in this generation now. All God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time together this morning. What a joy it is to, to look around at these familiar faces and to see your handiwork and to see just the passage that we've been studying today being lived out and abounding love that I've felt and seeing real knowledge and discernment and 
Lord, we give you the glory for that. We know that apart from you, none of that can happen, right? Lord, my prayer for, for the folks here at Cornerstone is that their love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so they may approve the things that are excellent. Father, so they may have an impact on this world around them and bring glory and praise to you, showing that fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. Their hearts would be abounding, their heads would be maturing. Lord, their honor would be increasing and the harvest would be producing. We pray this in your son's name.